Welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Michael Stevens, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and an associate fellow at RUSI. His work focuses on the politics and security of the Middle East and UK security policy. Today, our conversation is focused on Qatar and the ongoing feud with its Gulf neighbors. Mike, uh, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. Thanks for having me. Can you just remind us of the protagonists in the Great Gulf feud and how and when and why it all began? Sure. Well, I mean, it seems like this feud has been going on for decades now, but it's actually not that old, um, although its roots are probably 10 years in the making. Some would even say 20 years uh, in the making. Primarily centered around Qatar, Qatar's foreign policy, which under the previous emir, um, Hamid bin Khalifa, had become increasingly adventurous. Qatar was a small country that was not really known for being really anything at all other than rich. And then all of a sudden, under this emir, it became a very hyperactive state, intervening, mediating in Lebanon, in Sudan, looking to get involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and gradually using its wealth to leverage influence across the region in a way that saw Qatar as the kind of central actor in many of the key regional conflicts um, that were sort of almost stagnant and stale. And there was some success. In the mid-2000s, the Qataris were successful at mediation. But with the advent of the Arab Spring and the polarization, really, of politics in the region, I think that Qatar's activity began to worry, particularly its neighbours, UAE and Saudi Arabia, And they suddenly saw a country which, rather than stabilizing the region, was working actively to overturn an established order of leaders that actually Saudi and the UAE really did quite like. That being, uh, for example, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, um, uh, Ben Ali in Tunisia. Uh, They were hyperactive in Libya, helping to overthrow uh, Colonel Gaddafi there and sort of getting involved in questions that frankly made the Saudis but primarily the UAE very uncomfortable because the Qataris were seen as working with actors, particularly who lean towards political Islam. And even maybe more than that, there's some evidence to suggest that the Qataris were flirting with people who were right on the edges of Al-Qaeda, if not had been in Al-Qaeda themselves. And I think that deeply upset the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and they decided to take action. And so this was kind of done in two phases. In 2014, UAE, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain withdrew their ambassadors from Qatar and warned the Qataris that things would not go back to normal unless Qatar stopped this support for these political Islamists. And things seemed to be quietening down after the Kuwaitis intervened in 2015. King Salman of Saudi Arabia visited Tamim in Doha at the end of 2015 and everything seemed to be going back to normal. And then in 2017, all hell broke loose. You know, there was a accusations of a website being hacked in Qatar, stating that the emir had made some comments that were favourable to Iran, and then all bets were off. The Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Egyptians joined in, and the Saudis basically instigated what you might call a blockade. Uh, I think the word in Arabic is hasar, which is siege, but we call it blockade of Qatar, where they shut its land borders, they blockaded its sea, they shut down Uh, the ability of Qatari aircraft to land in their airspace or to pass over their airspace. And really since basically 
the middle of 2017, we've been in a deadlock. Um, Tiny Little Qatar stood up for itself. It found allies and friends across the region. And it's basically been able to stand up to this blockade and hasn't capitulated. And so we are where we are, which is basically a stalemate. Yeah, now the the Qataris say they've ridden out the blockade just fine. Thank you very much, as you say. Well, the other side, uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis just continue sniping at them. Uh, the latest example, I suppose, is a comment from Prince uh, Bandar bin Sultan. He said uh, in a recent interview, Qatar was on the margins and not worth a mention. And then surely you all know that they say ticks can drive camels mad. That's true, but my brothers and sisters, ticks are ticks and camels will always be camels. And that sums it up from my point of view. Well, I mean, Bandar, didn't he also say once that Qatar was 300 people in a television station or something like that? So Bandar uh, bin Sultan has a history of making uh, comments about Qatar that are less than flattering. I think that, look, this is, you know, Bandar chooses the words the way that he does. But there is um, a kernel of truth to what he's saying in the sense that the Saudis, who are more than, uh, I think, 100 times the size of Qatar, right, cannot understand how this tiny little peninsula has gained so much influence in the world, why it has so many friends in the West, why it's been able to effectively leverage its wealth to create influence far beyond a country its size should. Now, Bandar can belittle the Qataris and say they don't mean anything and that they're a tick. But the truth is, is that if they were so insignificant, then why was this extreme measure needed And secondly, when the measure was taken, why did it not work? And I think that's the thing that the Emiratis and the Saudis really don't want to answer, because I think that would mean that they would admit that their policy was misdirected. I think we can all understand, and I alluded to it earlier, that some of Qatar's behaviour in the region was problematic. I, I, I don't, for one second, say that there weren't relationships Qatar built that I think, you know, needed to be revised or just ended completely. But the way in which the UAE and Saudi have gone about this have sort of forced Qatar into a corner whereby it's had to basically change tack in its uh, domestic and foreign policy, look for a plan B. Turkey and Iran have been more than willing to step into the breach here. Qatar has diversified its supply lines, be that in supplies of concrete to build stadiums, uh, chicken, which came through the Saudi border as well, um, all sorts of things, milk, you know, all the things that you need to preserve a sort of quality of life that that modern Qataris are used to. I think it's wrong to say that Qatar was not affected. It was affected. Uh, Their hospitality sector has collapsed through the floor. I mean, hotels are basically empty these days. You know, before the blockade, 60% of the sort of leisure and tourism business was from other Gulf states. And they've not been able to pick that back up. And so that's been a, a serious problem. But I think what's important to remember, Bill, is that Qatar has one goal right now. It's surviving economically, which they can do because they sell a product, natural gas, that the world needs. Um, and that until we find a way to, to change our central heating from gas, the Qataris will be effectively a, a, a rich country. The other thing they've got is the World Cup in 2022, and they need to focus on constructing their cities and their stadiums for that. And so they're very f- sort of focused on that that's producing some economic growth um, and state-led spending, which is sort of creating jobs. But, you know, like all the countries in the region, they're suffering as a result of the coronavirus. So there's also this kind of double bind. But if you wanted to say, has Qatar survived the blockade? Absolutely, it has. 
Has it rebounded from a very bad place? Yes, I would say it has. And the implication of that is then, do the Qataris absolutely need to solve this problem anymore? And the answer is not really. And I think that's why we're now at the place we are, because Qatar is not willing to make the concessions that have been asked of it uh, by Saudi and the UAE, um, partly because it doesn't need to. Now, let's look at some contempor- other contemporary issues. You, you mentioned the World Cup coming up, but the normalization with Israel is being led by Mohammed uh, bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, and um, seen by many as the real instigator of the blockade and the feud. How are the Qataris viewing this normalization that's being led by Mohammed bin Zayed? It's really fascinating, isn't it, that the Emiratis have sort of taken the glory from this field particularly given that there was a, a very serious spat between the UAE and um, and Israel back in 2010 when a bunch of Mossad agents, if you remember, wearing um, tennis uniforms, assassinated a Hamas operative in a, in a Dubai hotel, which caused some quite deep tensions. Um, and historically, actually, Mohammed bin Zayed's father, uh, Zayed, uh, was very pro-Palestinian. And so this kind of move from the UAE towards Israel has happened over the last decade. It's been quite late And what's interesting is that actually the Qataris were involving themselves with the Israelis way before that. They had a trade office open um, in Doha where Israeli government officials were present, albeit quietly, but they were there in the 2000s. That trade office didn't last primarily because the Qataris were upset with Israeli behavior in Gaza. But there's always been a relationship there. And the Qataris have been the major go-between uh, between the Israeli government and the uh, government in the Gaza Strip of, of Hamas. And they coordinate on a regular basis. And I think that's afforded them a familiarity that uh, was quite unusual. And so now you have this process of normalization. And this process of normalization is interesting because the Qataris almost seem like they're left behind. But actually, are they? They are working pretty closely with the Israelis. So I guess the question now is, does Qatar feeling that it's been isolated uh, by its neighbors and seeking the approval of the United States, perhaps the future Biden administration or the current Trump administration, then say, actually, what we need to do is go further. We need to actually make this process of normalization a real thing as well. I think that's going to be a very, very big question that they ask in the next six months. And I think a lot will depend on where Saudi Arabia goes and where the rest of the Gulf goes. And, and I think for Qatar... The incentive probably isn't there right now, partly because their relationship with Turkey means that they're, they have to take the Palestinian side and they have to be quite pro-Palestinian in their outlook. Uh, and also, I don't quite see what the immediate benefits for the Qataris would be of normalization at this point. It's not like they need additional trade and business. Uh, and it's not like their economy is set up with a productive private sector that could absorb the type of activities that Israel specializes in, unlike the UAE, which really can. Let's look at uh, three current theaters of war in the Middle East, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Mm. How is Qatar dealing with these wars? Uh, not very well, I think is uh, fair to say. Yemen, well, I think Bandar's point about Qatar being a TV station is right when it comes to Yemen. I mean, they're basically reduced to sort of sniping from the edges. I'll be honest, I found the Qatari position on Yemen very disingenuous. Uh, they were 100% in at the beginning of 2015 when uh, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia announced a coalition of states 
uh, to go in to defeat the Houthi rebels. The Qataris were, were in lockstep with the Saudis. They didn't necessarily see it as a security threat in the same way as the Saudis did, but they were certainly on board with it and they wanted to stop Iran's influence. And then, of course, with the advent of the blockade, Qatar switched 180 degrees and has basically uh, used its media outlets to criticize the Saudis and the Emiratis for what they're doing um, in Yemen and has broadly taken a position which I wouldn't call it pro-Houthi, but it's certainly not anti-Houthi. So um, they've kind of been on the outside there. Syria, well, I think this was always going to happen. The moment that Russia, Iran, the United States stepped in, I think Qatar's influence was always going to wane. I think it was always going to be the case that uh, Qatar had influence at the early stages of the conflict when the US, Russia, Turkey didn't really want to get involved. They didn't quite want to get rid of Bashar al-Assad just yet. But then what happened, of course, was... Once that happened, Qatar's influence and its money really didn't make a difference when you had effectively a military conflict which required great powers to be involved. And I think that the Qataris were simply swept away. And now I really don't see them as an important player. Libya is the interesting one because actually that's a place where Qatar does seem to be gaining an influence. And it's gaining influence through its relationship with Turkey. And it's gaining influence through the fact that Turkey is facing down its opponents across the region through the Libyan theatre, as well as others. And really what you're seeing is a very, very sly ploy from the Qataris, using Turkish muscle to get their end goals and political um, wishes seen. So they support the government of National Accord against Khalifa Haftar, who is supported by the UAE. And it's very, very clear in my mind that the Qataris are now moving in lockstep with the uh, Turks in order to back the GNA uh, against UAE and Egyptian interests. And this, I think, is quite an interesting change because the Qataris were involved on the ground in Libya in 2011, but I think they quickly lost their influence um, in that country, partly because it was just simply not handled well after Gaddafi left and the transition meant that a lot of their allies were booted out but now that this civil war has been raging for a while, they've become a bit more vocal again. And I think that what you're seeing, Bill, is the hardening of two axes in the region, a Qatar-Turkey axis and a UAE-Egypt-Saudi uh, axis, uh, who are diametrically opposed to one another. And I don't think there's much room for compromise. Relations with America, Mike, you'll recall that initially Donald Trump sided with the Saudis and the Emiratis when the blockade was launched, and, and then he backed off when he was told that El Udaid Air Base in Qatar was key to the fight against Daesh. How would you rate relations now uh, between the Americans and the, the Qataris? Okay, not bad, actually. Uh, they've certainly been a lot worse. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, when the blockade happened, we, we didn't fully understand how Trump worked how you know the administration sort of thought about foreign policy yet because we were still trying to see if there was a pattern well there is a pattern which is that trump says something and then doesn't really follow through on it and the department of defense and the state department are left scrambling to try and make a policy out of it if there is one at all uh so this has been a consistent sort of issue through the region where you know <laughs> Trump does an airstrike against Assad, but there's no real follow-up. 
he announces that he's going to pull troops out of Syria and then doesn't and then does and then doesn't again, depending on who's spoken to him that day. The killing of Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, you know, they do the drone strike and then there's no follow up. The same thing happened with this Qatar blockade, right? You had these tweets and this aggression against Qatar and then nothing. And then all of a sudden, Trump makes a tweet a few months later saying, actually, it's a family affair. It's not really our problem, uh, you know. And then hosting the Emir of Qatar in bilateral meetings, as well as what you've now seen, which is a strengthening of the relationship, particularly with the Pentagon, uh, based on the sale of uh, F-15Q aircraft. So the, the Qataris, well, how do I put this bluntly? They use their money very effectively. Uh, they've lobbied hard in Washington. And to some extent, I would say they've out-lobbied the Emiratis and the Saudis. Um, and I think what we've got now is a situation where, yes, the debate in Washington is polarised about, you know, there are some people that really do back the UAE point of view, and there are some people that really do back the Qatari point of view. What's interesting is that the Biden administration, if there is going to be one, is surrounded by people who have a lot of deep expertise in the Gulf who really don't take either side. Uh, you know, guys like uh, Colin Cull, for example, who has deep expertise um, in in the region, really look at the key issue in that region as being the Iran nuclear program. And the squabbling between the Gulf states is kind of not an irrelevance, but as undermining the US effort to prevent Iran from, you know, breaking out towards a nuclear weapon. I would say that there are many individuals also within the Trump administration who feel the same way, particularly when it comes to things like uh, overflight rights. So this was really interesting. In uh, Recently, because Qatar Airways cannot fly over the Arabian Peninsula because of the blockade, they've had to fly over Iranian airspace. That basically is free money for the Iranians. The Americans don't like this uh, because it's a way of, you know, earning money, which undermines the maximum pressure strategy. So actually, this blockade is not really helping US larger policy goals for the Trump administration and for the Biden administration, if there is one. I think it's going to be the same thing. So Qatar has clung on, it's lobbied hard, it's worked hard, and to some extent has introduced a separate voice in Washington from what was there before. I wouldn't say they're everybody's best friends. Uh, I don't think Trump really likes them or dislikes them. I'm not sure he really cares much. But um, for people like Kushner, I think they, they understand now the value that the Qatari base brings uh, and that the, actually the Emirates and the Saudis bring. But what I will be interested to see is whether if Trump gets another term or Biden gets elected, whether they will dedicate time to solving this dispute. I really do wonder and I, I wonder how high it will be on their priority list. I suspect probably not that high. Let's just go back to that feud. Uh, it's wrecked the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council. In the larger geopolitical world, does that really matter? Does the GCC have any relevance anymore, if it ever really did? That's a really good question. I, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, it does in the sense that you have six countries who are quite important in terms of their role in the global economy. You know, a third of the world's oil still comes out of, you know, GCC territory, right? That's important. Whether you like it or not, you know, you, know, you and I are not driving electric vehicles yet. When we do, and when, you know, a billion Chinese after 2030 start to move their vehicles off uh, petrol and, and diesel and things, 
I suspect that the GCC will decline in influence. Um, the the medium term health of the GCC, well, I mean, the coronavirus makes predictions very, very difficult, right? Because these countries uh, locked down very, very quickly. And as a result, of course, the moment that they started easing restrictions, the virus came back with a, you know, with a vengeance. They're struggling domestically. All of them, by the way, are struggling domestically to keep up spending commitments that they had before. Their incomes have been slashed by, you know, dropping oil prices and hydrocarbon prices. The Qataris are a bit more insulated because of of, of the gas that they sell. Um, you know, they will always have leverage in the sense that they've got disposable wealth to buy things like football clubs and, and you know, hotel chains and, and uh, large office buildings and things. But, you know, we're, we're in a different era, Bill. I, I really am not sure whether these sorts of mega purchases in a post-COVID world are going to be as profitable as they once were. We'll see. It's just it's just an unknown right now. And what do the Gulf states do if that doesn't work out? Well, they've got to diversify pretty quickly. We've all heard about MBS and his Vision 2030. You know, the Qataris have a Vision 2030 as well. There are all sorts of visions across the region, but they're not moving quickly enough. I think it's it's just a fact that if they want to get going now and they want to continue to have the influence that they once had back in the day, and I'm talking during the Bush 2 administration and even back to the Reagan administration, then I think they've got to change now. And I just don't think that the uh, the Titanic is steering fast enough away from the iceberg. I really don't. So uh, long term, I think the GCC as a block is going to decline in influence. But in terms of individual countries, no, I mean, they're hugely important. Uh, the Saudis are always going to be important because they are the cradle of Islam and, and the king is the custodian of the two mosques. Um, their populations are growing pretty rapidly. They will be a large block in 50 years. Having said that, you know, you can see that the traditional levers of influence that the Gulf had on uh, the US are declining. The US itself is declining, which is also uh, another problem for the Gulfies. Um, do they go towards China in a bid to keep relevant in world affairs? Probably yes. Um, but will they be servants or masters? My guess is that they will be uh, servants uh, of Chinese influence. It seems that China is, is a very attractive prospect for the Gulf right now because it doesn't come with the baggage of uh, Western democratic states, and you know, they don't get lectured to by Xi Jinping uh, in the way that they do by, for example, Britain, France, America. So where do they keep influence in the long run? <sighs> Hard to say, because global politics is shifting so quickly. And US influence, which was so hegemonic over the Gulf, is is declining quite rapidly. The GCC is going to have to work out some very, very difficult problems to stay relevant. As, as a political block, I, I don't think it is a political block anymore. I, I think there's permanent disruption in the GCC and permanent division. Well, that's interesting, Mike, because you, you raise a, a very good point, which is that facing the sorts of challenges that the Gulf states face, uh, COVID-19, but also the need to diversify the, uh, the decline in, in the market for oil, which is inevitable, if the GCC was a functioning entity, uh, presumably they would be engaging in these problems and, and trying to, as a block, resolve them. So, so let me ask you this, Mike. I think you've probably already answered, but, but do you see this feud ever ending or is it just simply frozen? So I have a theory, which is that provided that, you know, COVID-19 in 2022 
is not what it is today. And you can get crowds of football fans coming to the World Cup. I, I think it would be verging on insanity for the UAE and Saudi Arabia to not lessen their restrictions on Qatar. Both of those economies need tourists. And if you look at, for example, hotel occupancy rates in Dubai, they're at 40%, which means these hotels are hemorrhaging money. This would be the biggest opportunity for Dubai to get back on its feet because Qatar is a tiny place. There's no way a million football fans can stay in Qatar. And, you know, if I'm honest, the Qataris are not on schedule to build all the residencies that they need to to accommodate these fans. The same with Saudi, which is, you know, going on this big social change, right? Opening up cinemas, women can drive, you can have parties now. And, and what is it, you know, all, all these famous pop stars are doing concerts in Riyadh. So, you know, they're well set up to absorb a lot of football fans as well. Are they really going to miss out on all this money? Really? I, I mean, you've got to be bonkers, given that the economy is the way that it is in both these countries. And we could have some very serious medium term impacts in terms of lack of employment for younger people. So here's the thing. I, I think that if that is not the driver to fix the dispute, then we're in for a very, very long ride indeed. And I can't see ways in which uh, the politics of this division can be overcome. If there is going to be a change, it'll happen between Qatar and Saudi first before Qatar and the UAE. I think Qatar and the UAE is going to take a long, long time. Having said that, I think it's very clear that people in Dubai, particularly the ruler of Dubai, would like this ended. I, I think back to when I lived in Qatar. I used to take a plane on Thursday night to Dubai almost every weekend. And I could be at the hotel or in the nightclub or wherever I wanted to be within two hours of leaving my front door in Doha. It's like flying from London to Manchester. You know, it, it's that close. There is a symbiosis between these two cities. And it's no surprise to me that there are a lot of skyscrapers in Dubai and Doha which haven't been finished because the money that was coming from each city has dried up. There is a natural flow of people between these areas. Disrupting it doesn't make sense. Uh, Dubai is suffering as a result. Doha is suffering. And actually Riyadh is as well, despite the rhetoric. So my hope is that economics will win out, uh, but emotions are high and you can never really tell. Well, Mike, we'll see if uh, football rides to the rescue in the form of the uh, World Cup in 2022. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Michael Stevens, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student... We have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 a year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.